0: Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you today, and especially sweet to get to sing praises uh, to our Lord and Savior today. I'm so thankful uh, for this opportunity, and I'm excited and uh, joyful that we get to open God's Word together as well. If you have not met me, my name is Quay San. I am the junior high pastor here at West Shore, and I am so excited uh, that we get to open the Word together. If you've been with us any time in the last couple weeks, you know we're going through a series called People of Faith, and in the past couple weeks, each week, our, our preachers have picked a character or person from the Bible who had great, exemplary faith in God, and we drew from their lives applications, principles, and practices that are for us today. Today, I want to look at another man who had great faith, but... The man we're going to look at today had great faith in all the wrong things. We're going to look at the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to see that this man had placed his hope and his affection in all the wrong places. So we're going to work through the text, looking for these things. Where did he put his hope? Where did he put his affections? And we're going to use this as a mirror to reflect on ourselves. Because the same thing is true for us. We are prone to misplace our hope and our affections. And like this young man, when we do that, we trade the joy and treasure of Christ for sorrow. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up here on the screen. And if you'd like about Bible, we'd love to give you one. Stop by the Welcome Center uh, and we'd love to put one in your hands. So Mark chapter 10 All these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus said, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." So in this passage, we see a man, a rich man, who comes to Jesus. He runs up to Jesus, he kneels before him and says, teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this interaction is actually recorded for us in three different places in the Bible. We see this in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so by looking at these three places that the same interaction is recorded, we develop a picture of who this guy was. So all three texts tell us that he was rich. He was wealthy. He had great possessions. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but we do know that being a ruler means you have social power. This man was used to power. And then Matthew tells us that he was young. So we get this picture. In your, in your Bibles, in this section, the heading probably says rich young ruler or the rich young man. So this is the picture we get. It's this young guy. He's full of youth. He's wealthy. He's rich. He had great possessions, and he's used to power. What's more, as we read on, we see that he also had the appearance of righteousness. It says to Jesus, all these commandments. Jesus lists. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. So the man has the appearance of righteousness. So if you would have seen this guy, he had it all. He was young. He had money, he had possessions, he was powerful, and he even looked like a good guy. He even looked righteous. What could go wrong? Well, the man goes away sad because his hope and his affections were in the wrong places. See, the rich young ruler's false hope and misplaced affections caused him to miss out on the kingdom of God. Like the rich young ruler, When we misplace our hope and our affections, we trade the joy and treasure of Christ for sorrow. So I want to work through this text together. We're going to look at what the man got right, because he didn't get it all wrong. He got some things right. And we're going to look at the places that he misplaced his hope and his affections. And like I said, we're going to use this as a mirror to ask the same kinds of questions of ourselves. So let's look at verses 17 and 18. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So right away, we see the man got some of things right. First thing he got right, this man knew that the kingdom of God was something to be desired. This man knew that eternal life was something that he wanted. This man knew that there has to be something more than just this life. And he asked the right kinds of questions. How can I have eternal life? And he asked these questions with the right kind of urgency. Right he runs up to Jesus. Jesus he kneels before him and says, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's got urgency. He knows that this question, his question about eternal life, is of utmost importance. That this matters and this matters right now. So much so that I'm going to chase Jesus down. I'm going to run. I'm going to kneel down before him and ask him this question. And so Jesus wasn't having like a... like a ask-anything session. He wasn't having a Q&A. He was setting off on a journey. He was going somewhere. This man chases him down and kneels before him. He's got the right kinds of questions. He's got all the right urgency. He gets those things right. He also gets right this sense that there's something missing. There's something in his life that was missing. And we can let this be a reminder to us today, an example for us, that this life Is not the end. That this life, despite many blessings or hardships, is not the end. That this life, even if we're at the church, we're doing all the right things, that's not the end goal. The end is that Jesus is coming back. The end is eternity with God. So he's asking the right kinds of questions. Because it's true. There's got to be something more than just this life, there's something better. There's hope that will not fail, love that is stronger than death, that surpasses knowledge. We can be filled with the fullness of God himself. There's treasure and reward that will not fade, that cannot be destroyed by moth or time. There has to be something more than just this life. And the rich young ruler is asking the right kinds of questions. Without something more, this life is just a hamster wheel of striving and striving after ultimately endless, meaningless things. There's more to life than just feeding our desires, or there's more to life than just coming to church and doing all the right things because it's what we do, there's a purpose. There's more, and this young man felt it. He felt it like a God-shaped hole in his heart, deep inside, all his wealth, all his youth, all his power, but there was something missing. He sensed that there was something missing. If there wasn't, why would this man come running after Jesus and kneel before him? There was something missing. This man was asking the right kinds of questions, with the right kind of urgency. The man got something else right too. Although this time, he does it inadvertently. He calls Jesus good teacher. Verse 18, Jesus calls him out and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, this man was using the term good teacher as a term of respect for a rabbi or someone who's higher than him in learning and knowledge, right, good teacher. Jesus, as we're going to see him do time and time again, cuts straight through to the heart. Is this man ready to call Jesus God? That's what Jesus is asking. So here the man's getting it right comes to a screeching halt. He inadvertently calls Jesus good, but as we're going to see in the end, he was not ready to call Jesus Lord. Therefore, his hope and his affections were sadly misplaced. And it's not, it's not hard as we look. We're going to keep reading on. As we look, it's not hard to see where this man put his hope. I mean, look at the first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This man put his hope in his works. So he thinks in terms of doing, how can I earn it? What's another good deed I can check off to achieve what's missing? Is there a secret hidden commandment that I don't know about? What do I need to do? Jesus, tell me the task and I'll do it so I can earn for myself eternal life. How do I get myself into, kingdom, into the kingdom of God? Is there an extra deed? Is there a quest I can go on? What can I do to inherit eternal life? He thinks in terms of his work. And reading on, starting in verse 19, we see Jesus respond to him. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept since my youth. All these I have kept since my youth. So Jesus responds and he says, okay, you know the commandments here they are. The man says, all these I've kept since my youth. Now, obviously, this man was not there when Jesus gave his sermon on the mount, or he would know that obedience to the law goes way farther than just outward obedience. Surrender. Anyways, he says, Jesus, I've done these things. I've checked off that box. And so Jesus, again, he forces the issue As if to say, if you've kept all these things, rich young man, why are you asking the question? See, because this man must have known that something was missing. He must have had a sense that despite all of his good deeds and outward appearance, there was something yet missing for him to enter the kingdom of God. Or else he wouldn't have asked the question. If he thought he had what he needed, he wouldn't have chased him down. But his hope was in his work. His ability to achieve it in his own obedience. He wanted to know what else to do. He had this sense that there had to be another mission, another good deed. So, what's so wrong about this guy's hope? What's so false? His hope was about the outward appearance of his own work, his abilities. And Jesus wants to point this very thing out to him. Look at the commandments that Jesus chooses, it's kind of a peculiar list. These come from the Ten Commandments, but it's not all of them. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And if we look closely, this list makes up the second half of the Ten Commandments, what they call it the second table of the law. And this category, this section, has everything to do with your duty to neighbor. What is my responsibility to the person who's around me? do not murder, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. They all also have outward and visible components. Why? Why does Jesus pick these ones? Jesus knows that this man thinks in terms of doing. Jesus knows that this man thinks in terms of these laws as boxes to check. So in bringing up these commandments, Jesus is guiding the man to the part of the law that he can't say he's kept. The first table, the part of the law that has to do with our relationship to God. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not create idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You see, the man may have upheld to the letter the second table of the law, but he utterly failed the rest of the commandments the ones concerning God's place in our lives. God was not the primary God of his heart. There was no inward surrender, only superficial obedience. And let's not forget what else the man didn't realize, was that to have an angry thought, a hateful thought towards your brother is the same to as if you've murdered them in your heart. Or just one lustful thought makes you guilty of adultery. So Jesus is guiding the man to the answer. By highlighting those he's appeared to keep, he's compelling this man to say, Jesus, I've done that, so what's missing? What's left? What's left is to have no other gods before the one true God. What's left is surrender. And we see that this man's hope was in his works, so he wasn't surrendered to God. And what is the result? He goes away sad. And just like this man, when we misplace our hope, we trade the joy and treasure of Christ for sorrow, sadness. Do you see the connection? This isn't just an interaction that gives us, oh, let's look at Jesus' life. This interaction is preserved for us by God in his word in three places because this applies to us. There is something for us here that God wants to communicate. Now most of us in this room have given our lives to Christ. We've made the decision to follow him. And if that's true, we cannot lose our inheritance. There's nothing we can do to lose our place in the kingdom of heaven. Nothing can take us out of God's hand, but we can miss out on the joy and treasure of Christ that we can experience now. That comes with faithful surrender to Jesus. Jesus doesn't merely want to secure our inheritance, secure our future. He wants to have us now. He wants to be with us now. He wants us to be surrendered to him now and receive his blessing now. And so when we place our hope in anything besides Jesus, we trade solid ground for turbulent seas. When we misplace our hope, we're choosing sorrow. When we base our sense of security and expectation for the future, that's what hope is, on anything but Jesus, it's like trading solid ground for turbulent seas. Now, I don't know if any of you in this room have ever been seasick, but I have been. And a couple, a couple weeks ago, uh, my wife and I went on a trip, and we got to go spearfishing. And I was so excited. I have always wanted to go spearfishing. I saw it on TV, it looks awesome. You dive down, you shoot these fish with a spear gun, you come up like a hero with your catch. I was so excited. This has been on my list. We were, I was so excited. So we got to go out. What I learned was this is way harder than it sounds. It was, actually, this is physically the most difficult thing I think I've ever done, and I mean that. So you go out of the guide, and they take us out in this small boat, And we drive into the middle of the ocean, and the waves are tossing and turning. We're going up and down. The horizon's coming in and out of view. And let me tell you, I grew up on boats. I don't usually get seasick. I got seasick, but not quite yet. So we get out to the spot, and we're ready to go. We've got all of our gear on, and then we realize, well, the guides knew this. We realized the fish they want us to shoot with the spear gun, they're 30 feet down at the bottom of the ocean. Now, I was thinking, like, okay, I could do, like, 8, 10, 12 feet, like, swimming in pool. Like, that's fine. I can dive down. 30 feet? That's hard. And so we get all this. We have to have a wetsuit, free diving fins, a weight belt, mask, snorkel. And so we actually spent most of the morning learning how to free dive, learning how to take a deep breath and pack your lungs and clear your nose so that you're, the pressure is okay as you go every couple of feet you go down. And this was hard. Like, you get... To the bottom. When we started, I could get maybe like I don't know five feet below the surface, and I'm like, I gotta get some air, I gotta go. And so as as you practice, it gets a little better. By the end of the day, I was able to get down to the bottom, but not for long. As soon as I hit the bottom, I'm like, I gotta go. The alarm bells are going off in your brain, like I need air. Now add to that, now you gotta take a spear gun that's like this big, a lethal weapon. You gotta take a spear gun, and you gotta sneak up on these fish which, by the way, they can breathe underwater, (laughs) in case you didn't know. They got to sneak up on them. You got to get a good shot off. How do you guys think I did? Not great. I was not successful. This was hard. Thankfully, our guides were much better than we were, so we still had some lunch. But I'm doing this all day, and by the end, I'm, like, beat up. Like, I'm so—this is the most exhausting thing. I didn't say this— I just remembered, you know, you're at the top, you're like watching for the fish, waiting, so you gotta take this deep breath so that you can take your dive. Well, with the seas they were, the way they were this day, every five seconds I get a wave in my snorkel, so it's impossible to take a deep breath. I am gassed. I am so tired. I look beat up. By the time I got in the boat, something about the water pressure at the bottom and my mask had burst all the blood vessels in my eyes, so my eyes were like red. I'm ready to get out and take a real breath. I don't even care that I failed. I want to get a breath. And so I throw my fins up over the side. I'm climbing up. As soon as my feet hit the deck, boom, seasick. Like it hits me like a wave. I get so sick. I've never been this seasick in my life. Like I said, I grew up on boats. I don't usually get seasick. I was so sick. That part was not fun. I was not enjoying this. I was seasick and sad, and we were so excited to get back to the dock, to get back to something solid, because what I needed was solid ground. I've been swimming and exerting myself, and I get on this thing. I need something solid, but I get out, and we're still moving around. I need something trustworthy, something that will not move. It's just like this. When we set our hope on anything other than Christ our sense of security for the future on anything but the work of Jesus. It's like choosing to be on the boat instead of dry land. Unstable, always changing, up and down, tossed up and down, to and fro on the waves. Eventually you get tired. Eventually you end up seasick and sad. But how easy it is to misplace our hope. Our hearts will take any excuse to put our hope on something else. Could it be our own works, like this man? Could start to hope in our own works? You know, the longer we are in the church, the easier it is to forget what Jesus did to bring us here. We start to think that we did something good. Look at what I did. We start to think the success and blessing that we see is because we've done the right things. And it is so sneaky. It creeps up on us. We'll even say partially the right things. We'll get the beginning right, and then we'll take a hard left turn. We say, look what Jesus did. Jesus has washed me clean. Now look at all the stuff I do. Serve in all the right places. Post the right verses. Have the best doctrine. I never miss a Sunday morning or a Devo time what it becomes is it's really about our ability to do the right thing, our ability to do good, our ability on the outside to keep all these commandments. And then when we make a mistake, it all comes crashing down. The wave drops us. Sometimes our hope comes from the people around us great leaders who are the best teachers and super charismatic, they bring us along and we're doing good things because we're with them. What happens when we realize that they too fight sin? Or maybe it's our security. Most of us have pretty secure, cushy lives. Good jobs. I mean, that's what our hope is. Whole families, a nice house and a 401k, The list goes on. It's so easy to misplace our hope. So let me ask you, where is your hope? What, if it were taken away, would also take your hope for the future? What, if it were removed, would leave you feeling stranded and hopeless in life? Where is your hope? See, it's so easy to let our sights drift from Jesus. It's so easy. But when we misplace our hope, we're trading the joy and treasure of Christ, solid ground for sickness and sorrow. See, this joy this joy and treasure in Christ comes from trusting that Jesus is the author of and perfecter of our faith. It comes by knowing that before God, our standing rests on his work alone. The joy and treasure in Christ comes from knowing that whatever happens here, no matter how bad it might get, if I'm in Jesus, Jesus is king, he's coming back, and he's promised to make all things And that in the meantime, he's promised to care for our every need. That won't change. That is solid ground. This is the joy and treasure of Christ. Whatever happens, he does not change. Our salvation does not change. Our hope does not change because God does not change. This is the joy and treasure of Christ. And so we've looked at what this man got right, the right kinds of questions. And we've looked at his false hope. And moving on, as we go in this passage, we're gonna start to see where his affections were. We're gonna see what this passage says about affections. So let's look at verses 21 and 22. They're all about affection. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, the rich young ruler not only had a false hope, but he had misplaced his affections. But before that, as we go, we see a different example of affections. We see Jesus' affections. Verse 21, Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Jesus' heart was moved with love for this man. Jesus' affections were first for the father and through that for his children, for this young man. Despite all of his misplacements and misunderstandings, Jesus loved him. Jesus saw him, the good, the bad, the ugly, and Jesus loved him. And so we know that what Jesus says next comes out of love for the man when he tells him what's missing. So Jesus is not trying to deprive this man by asking him to surrender but he wants to give him an even better treasure in heaven. He even speaks the man's language. You want treasure? I'll give you treasure, better treasure. And he does it out of God's heart of generosity. So Jesus is the overflow of God's heart of generosity. Later on in Mark 10, if we read on, we'd see God's heart of generosity on display. Let's just jump forward a little bit. Look at verses 29 and 30 with me. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. See, God wants his people to have houses and families and lands and all the things those categories represent, community, security, needs that are provided for. You see verse 21, he wants us to have treasure in heaven. He wants us to have love and joy and peace that are bigger than our circumstances. He wants us to be free from sin and death and have life eternal with him. He wants to give us even himself. This is God's heart for generosity that overflows in Jesus. if we need proof of God's heart of generosity, we need look no further than the cross of Jesus to see the lengths to which God was willing to go out of his affections for us. To make us co-heirs with Christ to give us an inheritance. God's affections are directed at us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In this passage, Mark 10 shows us Jesus' heart. And then we move on, we start to see the man's affections. So Jesus Jesus says to him, out of love, right? Out of love, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus, again, cuts straight to the point. He points straight to the heart of this man, straight to the thing that this man's unwilling to give up. What's the ruler lack? What's, what's lacking? He says, one thing you lack. The thing that the ruler lacks is that his heart is given to the wrong things. He's missed the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. He's worshiping the wrong things. His affections are misplaced. Money. For this man, it was money. He loved his money, his wealth, his possessions more than he loved God. So he was unwilling to surrender them, unwilling to give them up in order to follow Jesus. Now, when we read this text, it's easy To jump to the conclusion and say, this text, the rich young ruler, this is about the dangers of money. There's people who have more money than me, so I'm safe. And actually, even in the next verses, following this interaction, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is clear about the dangers of money. However this interaction, Jesus and the wealthy young man, isn't really about money. It's about his heart. God's not against people having wealth. He's against people loving money more than they love him. He's against people misplacing their affections. You know, Jesus' own ministry even benefited from faithful people who saw their wealth as given by God to steward for kingdom purposes. Luke chapter eight, verse three, is continuing a list of people who were traveling with Jesus, and it reads this, and Joanna, wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This list is people who are faithful followers of Jesus, who saw rightly saw their wealth as given to them by God to steward for kingdom purposes. See, with God all things are possible. It's entirely possible to have lots and love Jesus more. It's also entirely possible to have little and still love Jesus, uh, still love that more than Jesus. But the rich man, the rich man loved his wealth. He identified himself by his wealth. He was rich. Jesus even speaks his language. He says, you want treasure? Sell your things and give to the poor and I will give you an even better treasure. Treasure in heaven. I'll give you treasure that cannot be torn down and destroyed by moth or time or flame, but you must surrender to me. I will give you treasure, but you must give me your heart." And so the man goes away sad. He was disheartened and went away sad for he had great possessions. He demonstrated, he demonstrated that his affections were misplaced and the result, he went away sad. He missed out on the kingdom of God. And just like this rich young ruler, when we misplace our affections, we trade the joy the treasure of Christ for sadness. This man's misplaced affections meant he wasn't able to surrender what Jesus had asked for. And so I ask you: where are your affections? What or whom sits on the throne of your heart? What if God asked, would you be unable to surrender? See, the young man went away sad. That was his choice. He knew he couldn't give it up. We don't have to walk away sad. With God, all things are possible. We can walk out of here surrendered to following Jesus. Come what may, whatever he would ask, hands open in surrender, giving God a prepackaged yes. I don't know what you will ask God, but whatever it is, the answer is yes. Pre-packaged yes. I learned this phrase from Jessica Cole, who used to work with us on staff. And I was in a season where I was asking God, God, what are you calling me to? Are you calling me into ministry? And if so, does that mean I'm leaving behind all that I had planned for myself, all that I thought you were calling me to? What are you asking of me? I was asking that question. And she told me, it doesn't really matter what God's asking about from you. You can have an answer. The answer should be yes. Give God a pre-packaged yes, because you know who Jesus is. Whatever he asks you to surrender, make the answer yes, because you know Jesus, and you know that he is worth it. See, the rich young ruler didn't have a pre-packaged yes, because he didn't know who was asking the question. He had misplaced affections because he didn't see who Jesus was. Remember that first question, Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is pointing again to the true implication of this man's word. He's not denying his own perfect goodness, but pointing to the most important question. He's asking, what do you make of me? Are you ready to say that I am God incarnate? Because that is really is the heart of the question of eternal life. What you make of Jesus will determine where you place your hope and your affections. See, this man didn't see who was standing right in front of him. And because of that, if he knew Jesus, who Jesus was, he would have been able to surrender everything that Jesus had asked. Because Jesus being God means that the one who asks us to surrender is the same one who has the power to fulfill his promises. that the one who asks us to surrender and follow him is the same one who sacrificed his own life and beat sin and death for us. He has the power to give us eternal life. A treasure in heaven that will not fail. Jesus is the one who has that power. So what do you make of me? That's what Jesus is asking the man. And isn't Jesus asking us the same question? What do you make of me? Like he says to Peter, who do you say that I am? See, if we get that right, our hope and affections will be rightly ordered. The young man didn't get this right. So his hope, his affections were sadly misplaced. The young man's false hope and misplaced affections caused him to miss out on the kingdom of God. We too, when we misplace our hope and affections, trade the joy and treasure of Christ for sorrow. And so we must not let that be the case. If we find that our hope and affections have drifted from the cross of Jesus, the remedy is to look again at the cross of Jesus. If the root of this young man's misplacements were his misunderstandings, then the solution to our own misplacement is to refocus our hearts and minds on the person of Jesus the Christ. To remember once again who Jesus is. To challenge ourselves, to ask, do we really believe what we claim to believe? To look upon the cross and see our Savior's love poured out for us. To see the lengths to which God would go out of his affection us. He humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we could have eternal life, so that we could be sons and daughters and have an inheritance that cannot be taken away. This, the Lamb of God, this is who Jesus is our Savior. So what do you make of Jesus? What do your hope and affections say that you make of Jesus? So we ought to search our hearts and surrender our hope and affections once again to our Lord Jesus. He's a loving God whose heart overflows with generosity, who wants to be with us even now. He wants us to follow him. We have to surrender, to put our hope and affection back on him. And it's fitting now that we have an opportunity to come to the communion table. Servers, you may come. Today, we get to partake of an ordinance that Jesus has given us as a means of remembrance and proclamation. To remember his body and to proclaim his death until he returns. So let me invite you to use this time. Use this time to reflect on our hope and affections and ask the Lord, ask him to reveal to us where our hope and affections have been misplaced and offer them in surrender as we wait together. If you've trusted in Jesus this table is for you. If you've not yet put your hope in Jesus, if you've not yet surrendered your heart to him, let me invite you to let the elements pass so as not to proclaim with your actions what you don't yet believe in your heart. But let me also invite you to use this time to ask that question. What do I make of Jesus? Because Jesus would like nothing more than to open his arms to embrace you as you come to Jesus to give you eternal life, but it takes surrender to the God who has died for us. Let me invite you. What do you make of Jesus? Father, use this time. Use this time to search us. As we come to the communion table, we surrender to you with open hands. Let's come with hope and affection given to you. Come what may. We are yours, Lord.